Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Stefania Caponia, Booktopia's non-fiction category manager. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with one of Australia's best-selling non-fiction writers, long-time journalist and columnist, as well as one of Booktopia's favourite podcast guests, Peter Fitzsimons. Hello, Peter. G'day, Stefania. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining. A lovely time. <laughs> Look, today we're talking about your latest book, The Incredible Life of Hubert Wilkins. Now, um, you've described George Hubert Wilkins as the Forrest Gump of his era. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. And reading the book, I can see why. But for people who haven't read it, can you tell us a little bit about why you describe him this way and who he was? Well, I, I came to that conclusion even before I began writing the book. When I was doing my book on Douglas Mawson, uh, which involved Shackleton, there was this bloke, an Australian, Hubert Wilkins, who was there when Shackleton died. And then I was doing one of my books, I think it was Kingsford Smith, yeah. And so who sold who sold the Southern Cross, the mighty Southern Cross to Kingsford Smith? That would be a bloke by the name of Hubert Wilkins. In 1919, for the centenary air race, when Kingsford Smith dropped out, who replaced him? Hubert Wilkins. Um, then the, the when the Red Baron, when the Red Baron was shot down, it, the first Australian on the on the on the spot was Hubert Wilkins. I did my Monash book on Monash's Monash's masterpiece, and Hubert Wilkins was front and centre there at the Battle of Le Hamel, at the Battle of Villers Bretonneux. He was just everywhere. The last guy to, uh, well, one of the last anyway, to interview Vladimir Lenin at the Kremlin was Hubert Wilkins. And so he, and, the, and I must say now, what is apposite right now, everybody's rightly talking about climate change. Mm. The first person really to look at, and part of, part of the issue of climate change, of course, is polar ice caps melting. The first person in the world who looked at the polar ice caps 10 years apart and went, hang on, I used to be able to land a plane, you know, 100 miles north of here, and I can't now, and it's not, not, it's not, things don't seem particularly warmer, but what's going on? The ice is receding here, and this is a problem. The first person to ever do that was Hubert Wilkins. So he was, he was uh, everywhere and seemed to have a knack at being at the at key turning points in history or key moments in history. There was Hubert Wilkins. And I must say, the, a lot of people say, well, how is it that we don't know of this guy? And there's a very, very good reason that, if I can take my own example, I played, you know, a very minor role with the Wallabies 30, 30 years ago, seven tests, in and out, see you later. I haven't stopped talking about it since. <laughs> you know, did I tell you about the time I took on the All Blacks single-handed? And Hubert Wilkins was right up the other end of that spectrum. Instead of being a self-promoter, which I, I don't mind a bit of it myself, he was absolutely, I don't want to talk about this, I don't want to carry on about it, when John Monash, Sir John Monash, said in an interview, in a public lecture, I think it was, in fact, when he said, you know, this is the brave, Hubert Wil he said that Hubert Wilkins was the bravest man in my command. Now, this was, you know, Sir John Monash, the leader of the Australians in the First World War. He was there at Gallipoli. He was there at the Western Front. He saw brave men in action, Victoria Cross winners. The first person to call him out on it was Hubert Wilkins and says to him, look, seriously, please don't say things like that. There were men who won the Victoria Cross. You know, I was not, I, I was not one of those. Um, you know, don't talk to me, don't talk to me like that. 
And so he was absolutely, completely self-effacing, which is extraordinary in one who had accomplished so much. Yeah, so you know, I was going to just ask you why you think people in Australia didn't have never heard of him before. So was it just his modesty or was it? Well, the other thing was a lot at the time of his greatest fame, it was a lot of it was achieved globally. So for, for real, for, you know, Ned Kelly, everything Ned Kelly did was in Victoria or just across the Murray um, in the siege of, in various sieges and so forth. But, you know, it was done in Australia. I suppose Nellie Melbourne made a fame overseas and there, there were various pe people over the years, but a lot of what Hubert Wilkins did, you know, when he was, when the first of his fame came, came in the Arctic, before the first world, first world war then at the western front a lot of what he achieved in the western front was not known by people at the time then when he he came back he was hired by the british museum in the 1920s i mean it's fascinating 140 years after colonization the british museum realized that a lot of species in australia were dying out and would soon be extinct so they hired hubert wilkins to to trek for a couple of years across Northern Australia to gather specimens, which was a wise idea, but how sad is that? Yeah. That 140 years in, it's already starting. And Hubert Wilkins did that and made some criticisms of Australia at the time, including the way the white Australia treated indigenous Australia, and it didn't, didn't go down well in the 1920s. But the most fascinating thing uh, in terms of global fame he, in 1928, well, earlier than that, he conceived the idea that he could fly a plane from Alaska across the polar ice cap, not quite over the North Pole, but across the polar ice cap and land in Norway. And they said it couldn't be done. And on the first attempt, they were right. And on the second attempt, they were right again. But on the third attempt, he achieved it. He was, he, he was the navigator. There was a co-pilot with him, Ben Arson. And he did it. And when he landed, he was on the front page of the New York Times, three days running, which is not a bad commendation of global fame, made headlines all over the world. It was, it was a little like Charles Lindbergh um, had flown at, at roughly contemporaneously, had flown across the Atlantic. And that was sort of not easy to understand, but you know, it was, it was conceivable that if you had a big enough petrol tank, you could you could fly well we could see it on the map you, you could leave leave new york and yeah you can land in paris we can see that how could, that can be done but the whole idea of flying over the top across the polar what is that even possible and they said it couldn't be done and he did it and then the, the other big thing was the idea that you could take a submarine yeah. under the polar ice cap and they said it couldn't be done and initially to be fair they were right but but his you know the thing for me is in tracking his life. When I went to where he was born and bred um, in, South, in remote South Australia, and you go to that homestead, and 360 degrees in any direction, you can see pretty much nothing. You know, it's just 100 hazy horizons in every direction. That a guy that was born there could go on to be so famous and so respected not that he's not that he would be buried, you know, within five miles of where he was born in the local cemetery, like most of them were, but that he would be so respected that the a US nuclear submarine would surface at the North Pole 
with his ashes and, and scatter them and make a speech. What, what an extraordinary arc of a life's journey is that to be born back a Burke, just beyond the black stump, not far from Whoop Whoop, and another nation reveres you so much that with top line technology, they'll surface at the other end of the earth and scatter your ashes. Just wow. So what was it about his personality or his character that, that led him to do that? Uh, he was the, they talk about, you remember that film or that book, The Perfect Storm, yeah. where all these things come together in one extraordinary storm. In the case of Hubert Wilkins, George Hubert Wilkins, as he was born, he became Sir Hubert. He, it was the perfect, it was the complete package yeah. that he was physically robust, a bit like Mawson, who was, again was a contemporary of his. Mawson had it all in terms of physical capacity, absolute courage, fierce intelligence, huge education, all coming together to be a great Antarctic explorer. And in the case of Hubert Wilkins, he had amazing ability in every experience he had to gather new skills. So one of his things when he was born, where he was born in South Australia, there was a nearby indigenous tribe who unsurprisingly, but tragically were treated fairly appallingly by the locals, not Hubert Wilkins. He looked at them and went, how do they live? They don't, they're not going to the grocery store. I can't see any crops. How do they live? And he learnt, he learnt from them how you live off the land and he learnt some of their language and that feature with it from his father, he learned a key thing about how engines work. You need spark and you need fuel. And if you've got the fuels vaporizing and you've got a spark, it should start. Now using those two simple principles, he was able to turn that into a job on a traveling, traveling circus tent that showed films, flickering films. So he also, his timing was perfect because in that early part of last century, there were two huge things that were coming to the fore. One was aviation. So at Kitty Hawk in 1903, that Orville and Wilbur Wright got off the ground. In 1911, Houdini was getting off the ground for the first time in Australia. He was the first one in Melbourne, Diggers Rest, to get 23rd of March, 1911. Houdini gets off the ground, aviation explodes. At the same time, the first feature film ever in the world was Ned Kelly, the, the Kelly Gang. 1907 from memory. So these two things were just starting to move. And the first person to put them together, who understood film, who understood aviation, who understood camera work and said, why don't I put a camera in a plane and start to take footage that way was Hubert Wilkins. And so he was, he took, he, he left Australia seeking adventure. He was hired. And it's interesting, this, this whole thing, the big thing again, in the early films was, yes, it's one thing to do the Kelly gang, but as a, as a fictional film, but how much stronger is it if you could see an elephant on the charge in the jungle? How much stronger if you can see an actual war and do newsreels? So Gourmont Newsreel Company, they hired this, this Australian to get footage for them. And so he got some polar footage. He got, he got footage um, flying across the Balkans, uh, the Balkan War and the first one to do it. He went to the Caribbean, uh, the West Indies to, to look at uh, cocoa production. You know, he was all over the world and then he went to all these capital cities. So he had this experience, but as aviation pushed up, as camera work pushed up, 
putting them together, he rose accordingly. And then the amazing thing was he'd been exploring um, with Stephenson, an Icelandic American, Stephenson, the, the polar reaches in the north, not the North Pole itself, but around there with the Inuit. And you might note in the book, I call them Eskimos, which you wouldn't do now, but no, no, but at the time, that was the yeah, terminology right. used. So I want to put the reader in the moment. I can't put language in his, in his mouth that he wasn't saying at the time. But he had great respect for the Inuit and he, was, he learned how they lived in these extraordinary ice regions. And then he heard about the First World War had started off. He gets back to Australia. He says, I want to join the war effort. They say, well, you'll have to do a physical... And they say, no, we've looked at your feet. You can't do it. You know, you're, you're physically disabled. He said, I've just walked 600 miles across the Arctic reaches, you know, to get a ship to get out of here. I'm okay. And so what they said was, you can, you can be, Charles Bean needs camera work, needs a photographer to record the experience of the Australians on the Western Front. And so Wilkins gets there at the same time as another famous Australian photographer, Frank Hurley. And Wilkins was, by any measure, extraordinary. I've done four books on what happened in that First World War and the accounts of the, the bloodshed, the violence, the war of what it was like of shells landing and blowing people apart. And every day, Wilkins took his life in his hands. He goes over the top with the men. He's filming. He's taking photographs. And they, none of the diggers can believe that this guy will ever survive. And he gets frequently wounded. I mean, there's various counts. One is wounded nine times, another is 15 times. Uh, Wilkins couldn't be bothered to write them all down. But, you know, nobody, there was one great story of how he was, he goes over the top of the men and then he's taking the photographs. And they, once somebody notices a digger hanging around just behind him and, and they say, they say, what are you doing? And he says, this bloke's gonna get knocked and I'm gonna get his camera. It's a beauty. And at one point in, in one particular battle, he's got his tripod set up and he's, he's taking the footage and then there's... And the shell comes down and by the sergeant's account, the shell lands, boom, right just in front of Wilkins, just before the tripod doesn't explode. The sergeant looks at Wilkins. <laughs> Wilkins looks at the sergeant, takes the tripod, goes further up the hill, keeps rolling, rolling. And I know you're interested uh, in yeah. photography. So I was fascinated by the difference between yes. Frank Hurley, the approach taken by Frank Hurley, who's one of the, you know, who's really one of the most famous photographers that Australia's ever had, and Wilkins. Now they were great friends, but they took a totally different approach. Frank Hurley, it was to, for example, to get footage of a shell landing and a man being blown apart. They saw that all the time. But Hurley thought it was permissible to get the photo of a man being blown apart, get the photo of a shell exploding, put them together, and you'll get a lifelike image, but it's not actually what happened. And whereas Wilkins was absolutely I will take what I see, I'll get where nobody's got to, but I'm only going to get real footage. Charles Bean, who was their boss, absolutely wanted the Wilkins approach. He didn't want the Hurley approach. And the interesting thing there too is, Hurley was always keen 
insistent on acknowledgement. That's my photo. That's got to be credited to me. Wilkins couldn't care less. There was nothing in him. I mean, he, he had a job to do. His job was to chronicle the Australian experience in the First World War. If it was credited to him, good. If it wasn't credited, it didn't matter. And there was a totally different approach that they took. And the other interesting thing I'll say, Stefania, that I loved, that his reputation of this guy's unkillable, you couldn't kill him with a crowbar, and he's the luckiest bastard that ever lived. I was just saying that. I was just thinking, as you were describing it, I was saying, okay, it's like all these people today going out and buying books on how to be successful, how to achieve things, Mm. but ultimately it's you need curiosity, you need to be curious, you need to, and it's being at the right place at the right time and seeing that opportunity and knowing when it's an opportunity and when to run with it. And he seemed to have it in spades, right? Yes, Yes, he did. But without, it was interesting that he wanted to do all things but they weren't particularly personal ambitions. No. Like he, he was, he was more the scientist. You know, he wanted. I think Lindbergh recognised that if he flew, you know, if he flew flew across the Atlantic, well, you know, the name Lindbergh will resonate ever after, and that I believe was part of his motivation. Whereas with Lindbergh, with 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 Wilkins, he was more like Edmund Hillary. So Edmund Hillary wanted to get to the top. I interviewed Sir Edmund. Okay. And you know, I said, did you did you plant a flag? And he said, no, that wasn't yeah. you know that wasn't wasn't, wasn't about New Zealand. And he said, we thought it, the mountaineering community would be pleased, but we didn't realise how big it would be. Wilkins, I think, was in that in that yeah. very. And moment. I think I think that's part of the generational thing, right? I think yeah. at that time, people would weren't necessarily doing things to achieve personal. Um, stardom or celebrity, they were doing it for very different reasons to what that generation was. Yeah. Well, I, think, I totally agree. Part of part of that far more modest generation. Yeah. Um, they didn't have publicity agents back then. Yeah. On Instagram. <laughs> Instagram. But the thing, the thing about what I'll just to finish on that point with uh, with with his reputation. Ah, uh, straight after the war was over, Bean what race to Gallipoli because he realized that Gallipoli would be the iconic battle place of that war. So four years so that happened in 1915, 25th of April 1915. By early 1919, he went back to photograph the trenches, to record, to look for shells, pieces of shells and so forth. And he took Wilkins and a team of six with him. And part of Gallipoli, of course, was minefields, unexploded minefields, and they were everywhere. And part that I love is that Wilkins' reputation of being unkillable was so strong that when they were anywhere near a minefield, where's Wilkins stepping? Okay, (laughs) right foot on that leaf. He's put the left foot on that piece of bone. Okay, do what Wilkins does and we can't die. Amazing. Look, so, um, yeah, you, you touched on the fact that I'm interested in photography. So I think before we started this, I was mentioning I, I trained as a photographer right. and I used field cameras. So I know how heavy and big they are mm. with all the tripods. And so I'm just curious, what was, what was it like for him in those, in those days carrying around equipment like that compared to photographers today going around with these tiny little compact things that are digital, it's a very different experience, right? It's, it's funny you mentioned that because I was talking the other day about uh, Damien Pera. Now, Damien Pera, I wrote about in the Decodable. 
Damien Pera from memory, I think I think his camera weighed 30 pounds, yeah. two stone, and he had to lug it up the Kokoda track and back. You and I in our iPhones yes. hold the capacity, literally 10,000 times the capacity that yeah. they had of those, those cameras in those days. In the case of the First World War, they assigned, um, they assigned those photographers, they were called luggers, L-U-G-G-R-S-Y, their job is to lug the stuff forward and back. But, but most of them couldn't keep up with Wilkins. I mean, Wilkins was up early, went out all day photo, photographing, and he would also uh, then get back and develop them into the night and then you know, be back out there the following day. But he, he, was, he was amazing, his work ethic and his capacity just to keep going and never seemed fussed by by exhaustion or anything like that just wanted to do it and the interesting thing too various times um in journalism there's an issue that sometimes arises in journalism and more particularly with photography whether it's the ethics of if you're if you're filming a flood if you're filming getting fabulous footage of a flood and you see a family being washed down the river well hang on why are, you, why are you still taking the photograph when your job is to jump in and save somebody? And I'm just pulling that example out of nowhere. Yeah. But there are, be there are better examples where, on the one hand, you've got to bring to the world the image of the fiery bushfire. On the other hand, you have a human duty to help. And in the case of Wilkins, on two notable, well, on many occasions, he just put down the camera, yeah. grabbed the diggers and pulled them out. And on one, on one occasion, he, he came across 30 leaderless men. He had, he had rank in the army, Captain Wilkins, and he led them and they won. And it was for this that he was twice. Yeah. He, he and they were Americans, leader. right? Yeah, they were. A military yeah. cross with bar, which is effectively was awarded the military cross twice, which is no small thing. Mm. Um, now, you also touched on the fact that he um, had fairly... Um, advanced ideas about climate so he was really ahead of his time about um concepts of weather and how it was having long-term effects on the planet so yeah. can you expand on that a bit well the initial impetus the initial his initial motivation for leaving the farm so he grew up in a dust bowl of a farm as i say in the one of the most remote parts of south australia which is saying something <laughs> and he, they suffered through terrible, terrible droughts. And Wilkins was good at school, and Wilkins was the first to conceive the notion that if I could, if maybe the world's weather is connected, you know, that maybe we can, if we could measure the temperature at Antarctica, we could predict a drought in two years' time when we could plant our crops and use our water accordingly. Now, as a young man, he conceived that notion. And so he pursued it. And in his, in his maturity, he was the first to say, we need weather stations. We need weather stations ringing the globe, particularly in, around, the north, around, around the polar ice cap at the north, and particularly around the polar cap, ice cap in the south. We now have those. I mean, effectively, we do have those. We can have some idea. Well, we know, we, I mean, you and I, at a click of a finger, could find the temperature at the North Pole right now, South Pole, pretty much anywhere on the globe. But he was the first one to say, it's all connected and we, we need to know about temperatures in other part of the globe. And as I say, he went to Antarctica for the first time 
in the early 1920s on, a, on what was a fairly hopeless expedition, and then in the latter part of the 1920s, and when he went back on the second time, the ice had receded, and he he couldn't explain it simply by the difference in in you know like particularly a more moderate winter. He was somewhat alarmed at the receding ice. Now we're all alarmed, of course, but this was the late 1920s. And how was that accept? Was it accepted? How did people respond to his his opinions? Well, he was he looked. Uh, he was a, a what do they call him? A philosopher before his yeah. time, a seer <laughs> before his time. It wasn't widely accepted that they were all connected, but he was so respected in his in his other, you know, in his adventuring. He had basically two fields. One was adventure in, in his latter years, adventuring and science. And the other, the other thing, and I put it in the book, mm. he was also a spy. You know, yes. so when you have the Soviet Union, you've got, you've got Vladimir Lenin taking over the Bolshevik Revolution 19, 1917. And at that point, effectively, the Iron Curtain comes up and they don't know. We ju they just don't know what's happening behind the Iron Curtain. So, so somebody in MI6, what we now know as, know as MI6, but was then the Secret Service, somebody high up in the Secret Service, contacts Wilkins in the early 1920s and says, you know, we need you, we'll, we'll put you with the Quaker Society, we want you to go behind the Iron Curtain as a Quaker, a missionary, but you'll actually be, actually be doing reports for us. Are these people dangerous? Is that what they're doing? Um, are they are they going to are they a danger to shipping? Are they a danger to us? And the answer came back. So Wilkins spent, I think it was in the end, he spent three or four months in the Soviet Union with two women, and he comes back and he says, "Look, not only at the moment are they not dangerous, there's going to be no invasions anytime soon, but they're starving. They need help." And he was a great humanitarian. So. Um yeah, I've seen photos of the, in, in the book, you've got photos of where he, he grew up. Yep. Um, so just trying to picture, can you explain to people a little bit more about what his childhood was like um, and what drove him to then leave mm. and, and start his, his career as an as a explorer? Yes, so his father was a farmer and one of, one of his first memories. And so the South Australia had been uh, settled, I think, again, I think from memory, 1836, in the 1830s, and his father was the first white child born, I think, the, his, his grandmother had been pregnant when the ship pulls in, comes up the Torrens River, and his father was the first, first white baby settled there, uh, that born there and was celebrated thereafter. And in the late, in the 1890s, when Mark Twain, 1890s, yeah, Mark Twain comes, and they gather together the originals, there is Mark Twain up on the stage talking about the history of South Australia. And there is, you know, Wilkins Senior is celebrated up there on the same stage as Mark Twain. And there was a clipping in the paper of it, and Wilkins cut it out and was sort of more proud of that clipping that, that he carried in his wallet for the rest of his life than he was of any of the million well thousands of clippings that he generated but then he would so they were up there and it was when he was he was in his early early teens that they gave up they just this is too dry we cannot make a living on on this dust bowl of land that they then moved to Adelaide 
and it was there that Wilkins started studying engineering and started advancing his studies in many fields at once, really did well. And then there was the passing tent, passing like circus, a passing carnival, I'll call it, the main feature of which was look at these flickering images. I mean, people had never seen before. You can put this up on the screen and look, you can see what a you can yeah. see what a lion looks like. And then they're all watching and then flicker, 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 stop the generator to drive it to the electricity for the light stops. Can anybody fix it? This 17-year-old kid, George Wilkins, puts his hand up, George Hubert Wilkins, yeah. I'll give it a go. He gets that going, he gets it going. They say, will you travel with us? And so suddenly he's in the tent and he's going all over the country because they're going from town to town. He's learning about the way the world works. And then he, he goes the next step up. He comes to Sydney and gets a job in a cinema in Annandale doing the same thing. But the next step up is to produce the films himself, to become a producer, an actor, producer, director. Um, he worked for... He who made sheets from North Sydney and and then started making these films himself and then he uh, I mentioned he he gets he gets to he gets to London via Algeria and all these extraordinary things happen that he isn't he also there when the, he sees the Titanic at one point as well yes so that I mean I've forgotten that part that was also in the Titanic's pulling oh, out and never yeah, again Yes. So, um, yeah, and that's the interesting part for me, right? When you were, you were describing him as a Forrest Gump, I kept seeing all these moments in history where he was... What were some of the other examples of unusual oh, well, places? I mentioned so that, so that then, I mean, the, the, I, in my book on Kingsford Smith, I loved, I got, you know, when you're sort of, you're doing all these historical characters and some of them yeah. leap from the page. For me, the Red Baron. I mean, yes. the Red Baron, I just love that story. And 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 or more, the mighty Red Baron rolling up a score. So when the Red Baron was shot down on the 23rd of April, about five kilometres west of Villers Bretonneur, and he comes down and Wilkins is going along the Corby Road and he can see this red plane just coming, 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 coming down. And then he, he then, uh, he goes, he goes round the hill and there is the Red Baron and the Australians that had shot him down and they're getting the Red Baron out. And the following day, there's a famous bit of flickering footage at the local cemetery, Bertangle, Bertangle Cemetery. The following day, there are eight. The Red Baron had the rank of Colonel and the Australians had treated his body and his funeral with elaborate respect. And it was men of the Red Baron's rank, Australians that were carrying, either Captain or Colonel, who were ca carrying the coffin. And that flickering image was taken by Hubert Wilkins. I mean, it, it is just extraordinary. Yeah. Now, um, tell us a little bit about his time in the submarine. Yeah, so he, he, I mean, I was interested in one of my books, well, on Gallipoli, that the first time up submarines entered warfare, on that day that, that, that the men hit the beaches the 25th of April, there was an Australian submarine going up the Dardanelles, the Straits of the Dardanelles, and created havoc among, um, and panic more particularly, panic among Turkish shipping. And so it was significant back then, but then in the late latter part of the 1920s, Wilkins became very interested. He'd always been interested in flying and ballooning. Then he became interested in submarines and he conceived this idea 
that he could take a submarine under the polar ice cap, cap and the Americans sold him a submarine, a clapped out submarine, and they sold it to him for $1. Now, by most measures, that was 99 cents overpriced because it was, it was in terrible shape. And they, it was as soon as New York Harbour, even before they'd made the journey across the Atlantic Ocean to set off from Norway, even then, uh, a man, they lost a man swept overboard when they were sort of out on display. And they only just got across the Atlantic. They had to be, they had to be towed into Ireland where they were repaired once more, towed to London. They get to Norway, they go to Spitsbergen, and then they head off and then they reach the polar ice cap. And by that point, there was, some, there was very close to a mutiny on board saying, you know, we cannot do this. Uh, Wilkins insisted and they went under briefly just enough to prove that you could take a submarine under the polar ice cap and if we can if we can go if we can go even a short distance under and turn around well why couldn't we go right under the whole thing and come out the other side and it was and he wrote heavily about it and it basically expanded the human envelope of imagination of what what you know what can't we do you know, we can, we can, we never thought we could fly, but we can fly. We never thought we'd get a ship to cross the Atlantic, you know, in six days. But that's what the Anta the uh, Titanic did before it went up, before it went up. Well, in fact, no, I take that back. The Titanic didn't do it. It was no, it's, it's making uh, ships did that at the time. We can, we can fly across the, from the Antarctic, uh, Lindbergh can fly across the Atlantic. Wilkins can fly across the polar ice caps. And, you know, you keep doing these things and you end up landing on the moon. <laughs> well, we've just reached our half hour mark. So I could, there's lots more things you could cover about Hubert Wilkins because, as you said, he's, he's done so much. We haven't even touched on uh, half of the things he's done. This was the problem. This was the yeah. problem. But this guy did so much that each one of those those adventures that it I could be a could be a book on its own but in, in yeah. the end i'm happy with the two hundred and seven thousand words i've done <laughs> so i hope you enjoy it and thank you very much yeah thank you so look everybody who's been listening um i hope you've been as fascinated as i have go out and buy the book um you can buy it from your local bookstore or online from booktopia thank you for listening to us and keep reading thank you very much Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au